Come to me in your gaping emptiness, knowing that in me you are complete. As you rest quietly in my presence, my light within you grows brighter and brighter. Facing the emptiness inside you is simply the prelude to being filled with my fullness. I hope that bothered you as much as it did me. This is the so-called hope that the so-called Jesus of Sarah Young's so-called book, Jesus Calling, offers in her December 17th entry. These are words supposedly spoken by Christ himself to her. That Jesus wants to fill your gaping emptiness and that mysteriously by searching for his mystic presence, his light will grow brighter and brighter and brighter, whatever that means. Sarah Young's New Age writings, disguised as Orthodox Christianity, really has been one of the most pervasive delusions foisted on the church today. Jesus Calling, all the spin-off products. There's even a, a Jesus Calling devotional Bible now. All of these products are the golden calf of our time. They pretend to represent God, but they don't. And she continually presents heresy wrapped in a beautiful package in order to deceive And in what is kind of an unusual twist, what we've been doing recently is we've been exposing the the heresy and the spiritual danger of Jesus' calling very simply by making a comparison with the real voice of Jesus Christ. Since Sarah Young says she's heard from Christ, well, let's find out what Jesus actually said. And we've been doing this in John chapter 10 and 11, which is just permeated with the voice of Christ. Now, what Sarah Young's channeled evil spirit Posing as Jesus said, come to me with your gaping emptiness. This presents two problems at the very least. First of all, supposedly Jesus is speaking to a Christian. And Christians, by definition, don't have a gaping emptiness. Let me tell you what we have. Far from being empty, the New Testament says, we have the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Romans 15, 29, we are filled with all the fullness of God in Christ. Ephesians 3, 19, through the word of God, we're filled with all knowledge. We're filled with comfort, 2 Corinthians 7. We're able to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18. We're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, Philippians 1. And then in 1 Peter 1, Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. If I could just ask the question, what gaping emptiness? That's nothing more than a trick to make you think that you lack something. So the first problem with Sarah Young's demonic theology is that this is precisely the opposite of a Christian. But the second problem, even if this so-called Jesus is speaking to the non-Christian, saying to come to him to fill your gaping emptiness, gaping emptiness is not your spiritual problem. It's only a symptom of your spiritual problem. The spiritual problem of an unbeliever is that he has sinned against a sinless God. He has been unholy before a holy God. He has been impure before a pure God. He has been unrighteous before a righteous God. That is the problem of the unbeliever. And because the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6, the unbeliever is going to die spiritually. He's going to die physically. In all senses of death, he is going to die. This is not that he's going to go out of existence, but that he is going to live a living death, a spiritual torment for all eternity, and there is nothing that he can do to stop it. That's the problem of an unbeliever. The problem is not a gaping emptiness. The problem is a gaping chasm between him and God, one that he can't possibly bridge himself and one that results in death Now, there is, by the way, a gaping emptiness that I want. I want a gaping emptiness in my own grave. Brought to me by the gaping emptiness of Christ's grave, I want, wherever my earthly body is laid to rest, I want a me-shaped emptiness there, where I used to be. Because I don't want to die. I don't want to be in the ground forever. I don't want to be judged. I want to live forever and ever and ever in the glory of God. Well, how do you do that? Well, this morning, the real voice of Jesus Christ is for us, and it is what I'm calling the voice of promised resurrection. 
the voice of promised resurrection. And we find this story, we pick up our story in John chapter 11, and we'll pick up where we left off. Jesus has returned to the northern country for a time before eventually making his second to last trip to Jerusalem. I believe I said last week it was his last trip. It's going to be his second to last trip. His good friend Lazarus, who lives in just a little bitty village called Bethany, just about 1.7, 1.8 miles outside of Jerusalem, a couple of miles away. He's 100 miles away at this moment. He is far to the north. Lazarus has become ill in Bethany. His sisters, Martha and Mary, have sent for Jesus. And Jesus, who is fully God, fully sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, he has purposefully waited until Lazarus died before making the journey south. He stayed two more days so that he might be glorified through his miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Four days later, he's approaching the village of Bethany when the story picks up in verse 17. And what the text is going to highlight, really from verses 27 to 20 to 27, rather, what the text is going to highlight is a conversation. And the conversation is going to be between Jesus and Lazarus's oldest sister, Martha. And it's a conversation in which we're going to see in Martha a progression of faith, a progression of understanding. But before we get there, we need to kind of set the background. And verses 17 through 19 really give us a rich understanding of what's happening in the story. Verse 17, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb Four days. Lazarus was buried in a rock-cut tomb since Jesus would later command for the stone to be taken away. This is a tomb uh, embedded here in the rock. It's a, it would be a cave-like room, and in this room there would be a, a few little benches just kind of carved into the rock. And these benches were for the express purpose of preparing the dead body for longer-term burial. The, the body would be prepared and then put in maybe a trench, either back farther in the cave or even in, in a different tomb. And it would lay there for about a year. And after a year, the remains would be collected again and consolidated into a smaller space. Now there's basically just bones and either placed in another part of the tomb or even in a different location altogether. Now, verse 17 makes certain to draw attention to the fact that by the time Jesus has arrived on his about 100-mile walk down south, Lazarus had been dead for four days already. And this presents to us an interesting issue. Almost every scholarly commentator on John 11, historically speaking, they make reference to a mythologically held belief by the Jews. And that is the belief that the spirit of a person who has just died, and I'm not saying that, they, that this is true, it's just what they believed, that the spirit of a person who has just died hovers around the body for three days. It was even said that, that uh, the, the body was immediately buried because they buried their dead on the day of death. It was immediately buried so that the spirit wouldn't be confused, seeing its own body in the house going, hey, maybe I'm still alive. And so... The body was buried immediately. But when decomposition begins to set in, the person's spirit would give up and move on into eternity. Now, before you smirk at that and think that that's superstitious and weird, almost every major culture on earth has a similar belief. And if you have ever experienced the, the death of a very close loved one, you know that it takes a long time to really have that reality set in. This person is really gone. I have spoken to more than one person who is completely sane, completely in his right mind, but who keeps the clothing of a deceased person just in case she might need it again. Because it just takes a long time for the mind to accept this. We're, we're not set up to accept the finality of death. So it's said then that by leaving Lazarus dead for four days, Jesus was moving past that time period when the person might spontaneously revive so that no one could question that the resurrection of Lazarus was truly a miracle. And boy, that preaches so well. It's a, it's a tantalizing tidbit that we like to grab onto and say, I'm going to preach that because that's an exciting fact. But I want to exercise some caution in going down that road. My dad told me I was born a skeptic, and he's He's right. In my own examination of that popular school of thought, I found some numerous holes in the logic, and I think we need to say, say this because so many commentaries go down this road. First of all, the text itself never references this belief. 
And we always want to be careful that we need something outside the text of Scripture in order to truly understand it. Scripture speaks for itself. And in fact, in the Gospel of John, very often you see parenthetical references that if John wants you to understand something about the story, he just sticks it in there. And so if that was the reason for the four days, I think John would have put that in there. There's a second hole in this logic. It is true that the Jews in Jesus' day might have believed this, but the earliest known written record of that belief is well after 200 AD, almost 200 years later. Now, it could be that there are earlier written records that we don't know about, but if a belief was that supposedly prevalent and with the vast volumes of first century writings we have by Jews, to not have it referenced one time would be very unusual. There's a third hole in this logic. The Gospels record Jesus raising two other people from the dead. And in both those cases, he did it just hours after death. And so there didn't seem to be that need to wait the four days as he did with Lazarus. But there's one more reason that I find a hole in this argument, and it's really the only one I need, and it's an important one. If people in Jesus' day truly believed that a a person's spirit could just decide to return to his body within three days, that would cast incredible doubt on the miraculous nature of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People could accuse him of simply, well, he just revived from his wounds. He, he, he rested for a while. His spirit came back. And so I personally can't put a lot of stock in that being the reason that Jesus waited four days for Lazarus. But the text does make the emphasis. We can't get around that, that there are the four days there. Well, what, why is that important? Well, there's a couple of reasons. It is true that physical decomposition really begins to speed up on the fourth day. That that's when they're, they're really you look at a dead body and you say, that guy is really dead. And we can tell now. But it was also the day of greatest mourning. It was the day when it was felt that the family and the friends of the family were really at the height of their sadness. They've had three days to really accept the fact that this person is really gone, gone, and gone. And anybody who's gone through the death of a loved one, the moment of death is not usually the time of greatest grief. It's, it's days or even weeks and sometimes months later when that reality just sets in. And so the day that Jesus is arriving is really probably emotionally the most intense day that he can arrive. And we're going to see some other factors that help us understand this here. This whole scenario is being set up sovereignly by God so that Christ might be glorified. And it's serving another purpose. It's going to heighten, it's going to escalate the tensions between Jesus and the religious leaders of of Israel. And the fourth day is exactly the right day to do that. And we're going to see that in a moment. And let's continue setting this up, the scene up. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem. I mean, it's just a, it's like a a 30-minute walk. It's not very far at all. It's just a, a, a little walk over a hill, over the Mount of Olives, and you're there. What is this doing? You remember what had just happened? The reason Jesus went back to the north is because the the leaders of Israel were trying to stone him to death. And so he left because it wasn't time yet. And now the death of Lazarus is right in the heart of troubled territory. It couldn't be anywhere else. It had to be right there. And according to the sovereign plan of God, this is what happened. So now, now Jesus is nearing the time where he's going to be killed. And now tensions are escalating. And It will not escape the notice of the Jewish leaders of what Jesus is about to do here. Many of the Jews from Jerusalem, family, friends, and so forth, they are close enough that they are able to come and console the family. We know that the family of of Martha and Mary and Lazarus was a a high-level social standing family. They were a wealthy family. They had a rock cut tomb, which only a wealthy family had. And certainly, People in Jerusalem wouldn't travel just to go see every dead villager. They're not going to do that. And so Lazarus and Martha and Mary, they belong to a prominent family. And God used all of this to gather really quite the crowd here to further his plan. Word of what Jesus is about to do is going to get back to the Jewish leaders in lightning fashion. And it's going to just heighten the tensions and escalate 
to the point of the coming betrayal and the rest of Christ. And so what this situation sets up for us is that the rest of chapter 11 really occurs in front of a large audience. Jesus is going to have a substantial congregation in front of whom that he will raise Lazarus. Many of the mourners would stay with the family for quite a period of time, at least for a week. There are very practical reasons for this. They, they help the family in making meals and taking care of the home, maybe even taking care of the family business and so forth. And so there would have been a lot of people there. Now, if you've ever been to a, a funeral in our culture, we tend to gather in, in small groups and in hushed whispers, especially when we go to the funeral home and, and, and view the body and so forth. That's how we do it. Not in an Eastern funeral. Ancient Near Eastern funerals were sort of like weddings. They were loud and they lasted a long time. The the mourners didn't grieve in soft whispers huddled in little groups. There would be weeping. There would be wailing. There would be noise. There would even be musicians that might have been hired just to to bring music into the, the mourning process. There would be beating your chests in grief. They were very outwardly expressive. There would be even the tearing of clothes. There would be, if if the death was dramatic enough, there would be the wearing of sackcloth and putting on of ashes. And people grieved to the deepest core of their souls. And so when Jesus is arriving here, don't picture that he's walking into a serene, little quiet pastoral scene. The grief is at its height. There are many mourners with the family. There's friends and family from Jerusalem, from surrounding villages. And decomposition now on day four has set in. The reality of death has set in. He's really, really gone. And there's heavy anguish. There's heavy sorrow. And now, for our benefit, God has set up what will go down in history as one of the greatest and most important conversations in all of the Bible, a conversation between Jesus and Martha. And in this conversation, we see a progression of faith. It's almost like Martha is going to look through a telescope. And she's got it aimed in the right direction. She's looking at exactly the right thing. It's just not focused. And so, at first... She believes what she sees, but her, her faith is out of focus. It's indistinct. It's ambiguous. It's, it's correct, but it's hazy. It's fuzzy. And so we're going to just walk through this progression. Let's just look through that telescope with Martha in kind of a three-part progression of her faith. The first look in the telescope, we'll just call it a blurry faith. She has a blurry faith. It's, it's dim. It's unclear. It's imprecise. When the family of the deceased was in mourning, it was expected that the mourners would come to them, that the, the home would be the central location. There was an intense time of mourning that happened for seven days following death, and then 30 days of, of what we might call a lighter mourning, trying to get back to, to normal life. The family that was in mourning, they were given the courtesy of just being able to stay in their home, and everybody would come to them. They would stay at home and grieve. And a family member would leave the house really only under one occasion, and that was if a, a very, very auspicious guest was coming, a, a priest or a well-known rabbi. And look what Martha does in verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now, in, in any other circumstance, this was a normal way to greet a guest. You heard that the guest was coming, and so you would walk. You would walk even a mile or two down the road and meet them on the road, and then walk them the rest of the way there. It's kind of like when people want to go out to dinner together. Sometimes it's more fun to all ride in the same vehicle. And so that's what they would do. But during a a funeral time, a time of mourning and grieving, that was not usual. That was very unusual. But Martha does the unusual. And so now the the ensuing conversation from verses 21 through 27, this happens on the walk back to Bethany, a very quiet walk where they're not around all the mourners yet. They're not, not to the noise and to the hubbub. And Mary stays at the house. She didn't know that Jesus was close by, but verse 29 says that when Mary did know that Jesus was there, she got up quickly to meet him. Entire sermons have been preached, putting Mary down or putting Martha down. It's very simple. Martha knew he was coming. Mary didn't. That's the whole reasoning behind this. But there's really an even more simple explanation. 
Why did Mary not leave the house? Why did Martha alone go? Because this was a conversation that God had sovereignly set up to be one-on-one. This was a personal talk between Jesus and Martha to then be recorded in Scripture. A very tender moment between Jesus and his friend Martha in grief and in anguish over the loss of her brother Lazarus. Any guest normally would have been expected to come to the grieving family. And so when Martha got up out of her house, walked down the road to meet Jesus partway, she was giving him tremendous honor, paying him tremendous respect, treating him as an honored guest, even in the midst of her grief. And look how comfortable and look how honest Martha is with Jesus. Some have taken what she's about to say as a rebuke. It's not. It's just an honest statement of fact. Verse 21 Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She is respectfully expressing a hint of disappointment, but this is actually a pretty fair assessment. This is a a fair and a simple expression of her total trust in the power of Christ. And the fact is, is that people didn't drop dead around Jesus. They just didn't do that. People tend to come alive around Jesus. And so she's simply saying, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. It's a simple fact that she's saying, your presence would have been really helpful about four days ago. But she's not complaining. She's not rebuking him. And now she gives this statement of blurry faith, a, a fuzzy belief that generally speaking, Jesus might be able to do something. In verse 22, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now the text is not clear here about what Martha expected Jesus to do. She just knew he's going to do something, but she didn't know what it is. And in fact, there's a similar situation earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2, at the wedding in Cana, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother came to him and asked him to do something, and she told the servants, do whatever he tells you. But nobody knew what he was going to do until he actually did it. So Martha here is just saying, I I know that you could ask God and he'll give you whatever you ask. It does affirm that Martha is very, very clear about the special and unique relationship that God the Son has with God the Father. But Martha isn't hinting for Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. That is not anywhere in her wheelhouse at that moment. That is not in her mental list of options. How do we know this? Even when Jesus actually was getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, Martha protested. She didn't know that was part of the plan. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. This is my favorite verse in the King James Version, for he stinketh. I like that one. So she's not thinking he's going to raise him from the dead. She just says in verse 22, I don't know what you can do, but can you do something? I I believe you'll do something. Scholars have debated for centuries what it is that she's actually asking for. I I think the point is, is that she doesn't even know what she's asking for. She's just having this blurry, vague faith. It's well-placed. It's in the right direction. It's in the right person. But there's not much else backing it up. It's the shallow comfort that sometimes we say, well, God is in control. That's true, but that's not very specific. And so Jesus answers her vague request with a vague statement. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, we read that and we say, well, that's obvious, Martha. If you just look down at verse 44, it's very clear what's about to happen here. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus did not say, I'm about to raise him from the dead. He just said, he's going to rise again. Now, when we put this statement in the larger context of the Gospel of John, which is right to do, Jesus has already made four references in the Gospel, all of them in chapter 6, by the way, four references to resurrection, and all four of them, and Martha would know this, all four of them are references to a later end times resurrection. Every time Jesus has spoken the resurrection so far, it's always later. What is Jesus doing? Her, her faith is blurry. It's, it's fuzzy. She's, so he's carefully moving Martha to acknowledge a more specific faith. And his ingenious answer here doesn't, doesn't just tell her what he's about to do. 
There's nothing to indicate that there's an immediate resurrection in the, in the future here. She certainly knew of the previous resurrections that Jesus had performed. But remember, both of those were right after death. Lazarus is already decomposing. So her faith is well-placed, but it is weak at this point. But by his statement, Jesus has done something. He's, he's set the ball in motion. He's set this thing in motion. He's tested her. And he's getting her to think bigger. Now she goes from expressing a blurry faith. The, the telescope gets a little bit more focused. And now she's going to express what we might call a clearer faith. He moves her to a clearer faith. Now, before she expressed a hope that Jesus would just do something. Can you do something? But now she expresses a certainty that Jesus will do something, but it'll be eventually, it'll be someday, it'll be later. In verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, how did she know this? It's important to remember that the major teaching faction among the Jews were a group of men called the Pharisees. The Pharisees, of course, as you read through the Gospels, they had degenerated into legalism and into spiritual pride, such that they actually acted the part of the real enemies of Jesus Christ. But they started off very simply. They started off wanting to emphasize that the Bible is the Word of God and it needs to be obeyed. That was their emphasis. Early in their formation, they had great political influence, and they even really functioned as a legitimate opposition party to the political leadership in Israel right before Rome took over in 63 BC. But by Jesus' day, their political influence was essentially gone. It had declined, but their moral and spiritual influence had elevated. The, the Pharisees were very much the teachers of the common people. The, the regular gatherings in the local synagogues were more often than not taught by Pharisees. You could be a rabbi who is a Pharisee, and, and the schooling even of your children in the village school would probably be taught by a Pharisee. And, and the theology that you grew up learning, what you knew about the Bible, what you knew about God, was taught to you by the Pharisees. And so they greatly influenced what the common people believed from Scripture. Now, obviously, the, the massive negative influence that they had was that they, they began teaching that the Jewish oral traditions were equal to Scripture. That was faulty. And they exerted spiritual abuse and control over the people by setting themselves up as, as prideful examples of external obedience to the law without internal faith. And so in that, they were terrible examples. But they also influenced people to believe in the veracity and the truthfulness of the Scripture and in particular, they held a very strong belief in the coming age in which faithful Jews would be resurrected in a future kingdom. And they taught this vehemently. And so the common Jewish person influenced by the Pharisees, they might have problems with legalism, but he did have a fairly accurate eschatology because they took the scriptures literally that speak of a coming age, a coming kingdom ruled uh, with and alongside resurrected humanity. So what was it that Martha knew of the resurrection on the last day from the Old Testament? What would she have been taught? Well, she would have been taught Job chapter 19, beginning in verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that the last he will stand upon the earth after my skin has been thus destroyed. Yet in my flesh, that's resurrection, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself that in a future time, the, the Redeemer of God would be on the earth and the faithful would see him in resurrected bodies. She would have been taught this. She would have been taught Psalm 16, verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That's a promise of future resurrection. She would have been taught Daniel 12, verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And certainly, she would have been taught one of the most glorious and amazing stories of resurrection. It's an, really an illustration of God's coming restoration of Israel as a nation. And it's pictured, very unusually, in Ezekiel 37, as a valley filled with dry bones coming to life. Such that Ezekiel 37.10 says, They lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. So Martha had plenty of good information 
and reason to believe that someday God would conquer death, someday God would cause a resurrection, someday there would be resurrection life. And so Jesus has extracted from her this this correct and clearer faith that eventually resurrection life is available to those with repentant, saving faith. But now Jesus is going to focus her faith even further. It's going to come into great detail. And he's going to take her from a blurry faith to a clearer faith, now to a well-defined faith, a sharp faith, a very distinct faith. And in one of the most hope-filled statements that Jesus ever makes, the fifth of the seven famous I Am statements in John's Gospel, Jesus takes her to a whole new level. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What a statement of theology. First, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He shifts Martha's focus from a, a, an impersonal, abstract theological fact to a personal trust in a person, to the one who will provide resurrection. And you notice he doesn't just say, I will give resurrection and I will give life. He says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And we want to make sure and pay attention to the, the, the article there. I am the resurrection. There is no other option. You must encounter Christ. There's no other way around that. You can't just pray to God for mercy. You can't say, I do want my sins forgiven. I do want to be resurrected. I do want to serve God. I just don't want to do that through Christ. That is not an option. He also says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That death's dominion will only be temporary. This is from the viewpoint of the dead believer. That every believer will die in the sense of experiencing physical death. But this is just a gateway. This is just the beginning of life and fellowship with him. And this expresses the first of two paradoxes that Jesus gives. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The, the paradox is, when you die, that means you're alive. What? Say that again. When you die, that means you're alive. That's the first paradox. Then he says... Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is the second paradox, that when you live, now you'll never die. Now, why is that a paradox? From the viewpoint of a living believer who's living by faith, Jesus tells him, you will never die. Human experience says that if you're alive, that means you're going to die. That is always the experience. And when you die, you die. You will never live again in the same sense that you did. Even every culture that believes in some sort of afterlife, it's never the same. It's never the same. It's less. And so the second paradox that Jesus gives, when you live, you will never die. When you die, you will live. When you live, you'll never die. Seems very hard to explain. But what he's doing with Martha is he's taking her way beyond what she was taught by the Pharisees. The Pharisaical view of resurrection is true, but it was limited to a very very much a, a later time, a someday time, an end-of-day resurrection, end-of-times resurrection. But Jesus is saying something totally different, so much bigger, that the moment a person puts his trust in Christ, he begins to experience that life of the age to come that is untouchable by death that eternal life doesn't begin at resurrection. Eternal life begins now. Jesus isn't talking about the certainty of resurrection life someday. He's talking about the certainty of resurrection life today, right away, at this moment. The one who is the resurrection is offering immediate life, immediate life in him, immediate results. This is exactly what now we see fleshed out in the rest of the New Testament. Paul taught us in Romans 6, verse 4, that we have died with Christ positionally. Thus, we have, paid, we have seen our sins paid for through him. And he says, quote, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, positionally before God, you've already died, you've already been raised. And for us, physical death isn't death. It's just consummation of what we've already been given. It's the proof of what's already happened. I put it this way, death is not, oh no, death is, I told you so. 
It's not that you will receive eternal life someday. You have it now. When did you start living forever? The moment you got saved. This is so much bigger than in the last days. Colossians 2 verse 12, past tense, you were also raised with Christ through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Colossians 3 1, if then you have been, past tense, raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. In regard to sin, our resurrection has already been accomplished. It's already done. Recently, I, I heard something that made me sad. It was a comedian who was trying to make some jokes about death. But you could hear the, the reality in his jokes. You could hear the tinge of sadness. He, he kept saying, I, I don't want to die. I like it here. I like being alive. And when he first started, he made a couple of little jokes, and the audience laughed. And then as you listen, nobody's laughing. And there was such a sad note of reality that what he's saying, he said, I don't want to die. We don't want to die. We want to breathe and we want to enjoy. We want to relate. We want to eat. We want to drink. We want to walk. We want to run. We want to sing. We want to play. We want to dance. We want to fellowship. We want to delight. We, we were made for this. That's what you were made for. And instinctively, you know that there's something unnatural about death. There's something about it that just isn't right. And more importantly, we were made to do all those things to the delight of God in the presence of God in continual worship of God. If I can put it this way, you were created at the highest level, at the, at the core of who you are. You were created for the Garden of Eden. That's why you exist. The direct, unmediated presence of God to enjoy his creation and to bask in his company. That's what you were made for. But it's only through faith in Christ that you'll get to do that, that on a new earth where the delights of this sinless world that we will then live in will be multiplied countless times over and over again in a curse-free, sin-free, rebel-free environment. See, Jesus has made this great claim that he doesn't just give resurrection. He is the resurrection. He doesn't just give life. He is the life. And now Jesus asks Martha the question, which is the entire point of the Gospel of John. At the end of verse 26, he says, Do you believe this? That is the question of John's Gospel. Now, I think Martha gets a bad rap, to be honest with you. We mostly remember Martha for her complaining spirit. I would feel bad if my complaining spirit was recorded in the Bible for all of eternity. Luke 10 records the time that Jesus was visiting his family's home and Mary was seated at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach and Martha was busy in the kitchen and she complained to Jesus that she was doing all the work, kind of a typical older sister complaint there. And So poor Martha goes down in history as the griping older sister who missed the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus. But could I encourage you to remember Martha for something else? She gives what is essentially the prototypical confession of faith that the Gospel of John is aiming for in its readers. Martha's confession is so glorious. It is so beautiful. It is the example for those who are uncertain that if you want to be a follower of Christ, this is what you must believe. In verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And now here her faith has progressed from a blurry faith to a clearer faith. And now this is a well-defined faith because her faith is no longer in something that God can do. It's no longer in something in, in, that God can do later. Her faith has gone to be in a person. It is sharp faith. It is clarified faith. It is concentrated faith. It is faith on the singular object of her faith, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in fact, her confession is a sample of what the Apostle John hopes for, for all the readers of this gospel. Remember the purpose of the gospel in John 20, verse 31. But these, speaking of the signs, the, the miracles, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What's Martha's answer? Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's the answer. And she says, I believe. This isn't, I'm thinking about it, or I even have come to an intellectual assent. 
When she says, I believe, this is a perfect verb. It means, I have believed, I will always continue to believe. It speaks of a settled conviction with no doubts whatsoever. And their statement in Greek is emphatic. It's, I myself believe. I absolutely believe. It's personal. I'm fully convinced. And this confession is so glorious. There's three parts to it. First, she says, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ. That's the Greek version of the Hebrew word for Messiah. We get Messiah. It means anointed one. In a basic sense, a Messiah or a Christ is someone consecrated rather to a, a high office. It's indicated by the anointing of oil, according to ancient Near Eastern practice. And this anointing gave the person a high and a sacred status and title, whether as a king or as a priest or a representative of some sort. It was meant to guarantee authority, meant to guarantee reverence, meant to guarantee respect. Aaron, the brother of Moses, Aaron and his sons were anointed as priests to serve the Lord in Exodus 30. In fact, this was so important that the Lord gave a specific formula of the oil to be used in this anointing and said, don't ever use this for anything else, only this. The young boy David was chosen by God to be the true king of Israel. He was anointed by the prophet Samuel and through the Davidic covenant in which God promised that Israel would have a Davidic king on the throne forever. This became now a a major part, a major thrust of the Israelite understanding of a coming Messiah, a coming Davidic king, an anointed leader, a ruler. The ultimate king was to come with authority, with sovereign power, with with glory, not just over Israel, but over the entire world. That this king, this Messiah, this Christ, would be the recipient of the promise of Daniel 7.14, that to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed And so when someone called Jesus the son of David, that was laden with meaning and messianic implications, that he is the Messiah King. But the Old Testament doesn't just identify Messiah as a glorious coming king. The prophet Isaiah identified Messiah as a coming suffering servant who would bring salvation to his people through his substitutionary death. But that part of the coming of Messiah was so often overlooked. In fact, in extra-biblical Jewish literature, the coming of the Messiah was just kind of reduced to a national optimism, that there would be a political savior who would come to his people, and the people are inherently worthy of salvation. That's why the Messiah is coming, instead of a spiritual savior coming to save a people who are inherently unworthy of salvation. And so it morphed, it changed into a spiritual arrogance. But it is very interesting that honest Jewish scholars did see two contrasting views of Messiah in the Old Testament. They saw the conquering king, but they also saw the suffering servant. And they couldn't reconcile the two. So you know what the prevailing view among ancient Jewish scholars came to be? The Dead Sea Scrolls indicate that many of these scholars decided that the Old Testament taught that there would be two messiahs that would come. One, the political strong leader, the other one, the suffering servant, to die for the sins of his people. But by New Testament times, especially because of being under Roman rule, Messiah had really the the political military ruler view that had won out, and that's what they were looking for. You remember after Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000 men and their wives and children, the people were about to try to take Jesus captive to forcibly do what? To put him in prison? No, to make him their king. Because they thought, you know, if this guy can make 20,000 meals from nothing, I'll bet he could do something amazing to the Roman army. That was their rationale. But Martha understood when she said, you are the son of God. You are the Christ. You are all that the Christ is entitled to be. You are the king. She came and met him like you meet a king. But you were also the savior. There's a second part of her confession. She says he is the son of God. Generally speaking, the title son of God or son of the gods was a designation of royalty. It it indicated someone's inherent right to rule. Alexander the Great was called, he had a nickname, he was called the son of Zeus. 
It was to give him authority and the appearance of this intrinsic right to conquer and to rule all peoples. Well, in the New Testament, the idea of Messiah, the chosen king, and the Son of God, they, they go together several times as it does here in John eleven twenty seven. Matthew sixteen sixteen, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark fourteen sixty one, the high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? So to be Messiah is to be the Son of God, to be the Son of God is to be Messiah. They go together. Now, who believed that Jesus was the Son of God? Is that something we just made up? Well, let me give you a little list. First of all, this is the easy one. Jesus said he was the Son of God. He was very open about his status as the Son of God. He addressed God as his Father, which was very unusual, very unconventional in Jewish prayer. He refers to himself as the Son of God. Who else believed he was the Son of God? God believed he was the Son of God. At the baptism of Jesus, Matthew 3.17, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Angels believe that he's the Son of God. Gabriel told Mary that Jesus would be great, quote, and will be called the Son of the Most High in Luke 1. So Jesus believes it, God believes it, the angels believe it. Satan believes he's the Son of God. Matthew 4, 3, the tempter came and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Not only does Jesus believe it, God, angels, and Satan, but all the demons believe it as well. Thousands of demons who were tormenting a man in Mark 5 identified Jesus rightly. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? By the way, even Jesus' enemies knew the implications of this title. In John 5.18, his enemies were seeking to kill Jesus because he called himself the Son of God, quote, making himself equal with God. So when Martha says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, she's saying, you are the King, you are the Savior, you are the Son of God, you are God. And there's a third part of her confession, who is coming into the world. He's coming to the world. The implication here is that he's from heaven. It's not just, well, you were born and God commissioned you. you. It's not just that. It's you came from somewhere else. You came from a different place. And this place is Jesus in a unique category all alone. He's not like Habakkuk. He's not like Joel. He's not like the other prophets. He's not like Isaiah. He's not like Daniel. He's not like Jeremiah. He's not like Moses. He has some things in common with those men, but he has one thing totally unique. John 5.19, Jesus said he has seen what the Father does. He has placed eyes on what God does. John 5.27, the Father personally gave Jesus authority to execute judgment. The verse prior, the Father personally gave Jesus authority to grant eternal life. John 5.28 and 29, the Father has personally given Jesus authority to resurrect all men, some to life, some to judgment. Jesus said in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven to do the Father's will. John 6, 62, Jesus said he's going to ascend. He didn't just say to heaven, he said to where I was before, where I used to be, where I came from, my real home. And Jesus said that he intimately knows the Father. In John 7, 29, he says, for I come from him. I come from him. Martha's confession is monumental in scope. And it is the difference between life and death. It's the difference between blessing and condemnation. It's the difference between hope and despair. And of course, just an object lesson, that resurrection life is immediate upon conversion. Just as an object lesson, Jesus is going to do something to prove it. And he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead right now just to show that when I say I am the resurrection and the life, I can prove that to you. I've prayed for all of you this week as I study and as I prepare, and my prayer for you has been that your faith in the Lord would not be blurry, that your faith in Christ would not just be clearer, but it would be well-defined faith in the object of your faith who doesn't just provide resurrection and life, but who is the resurrection and the life. I, I can't speak for you. I hope I am, but I can't speak for you. I'm only speaking for myself. But the knowledge of Christ that I find in this passage has given me anything 
except a so-called gaping emptiness. I'm left, as I hope you are, with what the Apostle Paul called the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Because for the believer in Christ, we can join King David, who said in Psalm 63, verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Gaping emptiness, not for the Christian, not for the one who worships the one who is the resurrection, who is the life. Never forget, your eternal life isn't future, it's now. It's right now, at this moment. Our Father, we love you and thank you so much. We're so encouraged by the words of Christ. We're so edified and lifted up. And it's my prayer, Lord, for any who may be here, who have kind of a a well-aimed but a blurry faith. I pray that their vision of Christ would grow more and more distinct that as they see him revealed four times over in the Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, as they see him revealed in the, in the epistles, as they see him revealed in the Old Testament prophetically and, and certainly in, in his most glorious presentation in the book of Revelation, that their faith would go from being blurry to being clearer and now to be well-defined. We praise you and thank you that you sent the one who is the resurrection, who is the life, The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I would also pray for a man or a woman or a child who is here, who has not come to faith in Christ. We would plead with you, Lord, to open their eyes to the gospel. We would plead with you to ask you that might today be the day, might this day be the day that the Holy Spirit regenerates the souls of those who don't know you and who have heard this message Might this be the day when they enter into resurrection life and enter into that beginning of eternal life in which there is no fear in death, there is no sting in death, there is no power in death. And sin has been conquered and paid for. And we would additionally pray for every child in this building right now, every child hearing this message, every child who has heard the gospel this day, would you not lose one? Would you save each and every one of them, Lord, so that they too might experience the resurrection life of Christ? For it is in his name that we pray this morning.